0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning we come to Hebrews 9 verses 15 through 26 as we keep making our way week by week through this letter. And once again we have the opportunity to meditate upon and celebrate our salvation in Jesus Christ. But before we hear this, Word to us this morning. Let us call upon our God once again and ask for His mercy and help. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as once again we hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that once again You would impress upon our hearts the wonder of this reality. That we would not grow cold to our Savior. That we would not grow bored with the blood of Christ. So help us to understand Your Word. Lead us into all truth by Your Spirit of truth, but awaken our affections for Christ that we would glory in Him and no other. We ask this in his name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 26. Therefore, he, this is still speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Now most people do not like to think about, talk about, see or touch blood. Many people faint at the very sight of blood. So it may seem strange to you that Christians talk and sing a lot about blood. If you read the Christian Bible, if you attend a Christian worship service, if you listen to Christian preaching, you will conclude Christians are obsessed with blood. And we are. But this is not an obsession with blood in general. We're not vampires. It's an obsession with a very particular blood. And that is the blood of Jesus. And if this preoccupation with the blood of Jesus isn't strange enough for you in and of itself, you may find it strange how we describe this blood. For Peter calls this blood precious. He says it is more valuable than silver and gold. He says this is the ultimate ransom price to set people free. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a hostage situation in which the criminal or terrorist demands the payment of blood instead of millions of dollars. But then the Bible gets even more strange because John says that this blood purifies. And so Christians sing... Songs about washing in the blood of the Lamb. We just sang a song, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Revelation 7.14 says, God's people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You may wonder, since when does blood make things white instead of red? And I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a parent telling their kid when they come inside from playing outside and they're all filthy, they say, please go take a bath. We're going to fill the bath with blood so that you can get clean, and I'm going to go wash your clothes, and we're going to use blood instead of laundry detergent. It's just not the normal cleaning agent. And yet Christians describe Jesus' blood as precious, as purifying. And is powerful. But it gets even stranger. For Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so near the end of his life, As he eats a meal with his disciples, he hands them bread and says, take and eat, this is my body. And then he passes them a cup and he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And so when Christians gather to worship Jesus, they often, as we will do later today eat bread and drink wine or juice celebrating the body and blood of Jesus. Not surprisingly, one of the common accusations against Christians in the first and second century A.D. as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire was these Christians are cannibals. They eat bodies and drink blood. See, if you've been around the church You don't even think twice about this anymore. Of course we sing about blood. Of course we eat and drink in celebration of the body and blood of Christ. And yet the world has always found this Christian faith and practice strange at best, sick and twisted at worst. So why do Christians care so much about blood? Especially the blood of Jesus. Well, the answer which I will defend from our text this morning is that Christians care so much about the blood of Jesus because it is Jesus' blood that has saved God's people in all times for all time. And so there is nothing more precious, more purifying, and more powerful in the universe. You see, blood, as we'll see, is necessary to save from sin. And Jesus' blood is the only blood that has ever or ever will save from sin. So in other words, Christians care so much about the blood of Christ because we want to be saved from sin. We want to gain eternal life. And Jesus' blood is the only way that that can happen. This is what Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us. For clarity's sake, I'm dividing my sermon under two headings, Covenant Inheritance and Covenant Blood, and we will spend the majority of the time on that second heading. But first is Covenant Inheritance. For throughout Hebrews, the author has been helping us see how the new covenant has been inaugurated by Christ and that this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant under Moses and the law. Now the comparison that he has been making and as I've tried to argue is not one of total disjunction. It is a comparison of glory ascending into even greater glory. It's not a movement from bad to good. It is a movement from great to even greater. So comparing the the old covenant to the new is like comparing the the Model T to a Ferrari. The Model T was a, a good first version of a car. It could go 40 to 45 miles per hour. The world hadn't seen anything like this. But today, you would not be very impressed with a Model T. Ferraris can go over 200 miles per hour. In this way, the new covenant is an explosion of heightened glory compared to the old. And what is this covenant designed for? Well, all covenants with God are designed to... Institute a loving, binding, personal relationship with God and His people that they can dwell together in peace and joy. We've seen this throughout Hebrews as the author talks about us becoming God's children in chapter 2, about entering God's eternal rest in chapter 4 of drawing near to God in chapter 7. That has been the goal. Now another way to describe this reality is to to speak of receiving an inheritance. And you see this in the first half of verse 15. He says, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Just another way of describing the goal of salvation that inheritance is ultimately a relationship with God. But throughout the Bible you see this, this entails many wonderful spiritual and physical blessings. In the Abrahamic covenant it included the promise of land, of offspring, and to be a blessing to all nations. As we read a couple of weeks ago from Jeremiah 31, which our author quotes in Hebrews 8, These blessings also include spiritual transformation, the ability to obey God's law. It includes knowing God intimately and fully. It includes the removal and forgiveness of sins. And all of this, the author has been telling us, is coming to its full finality with the new covenant and eventually with the new heavens and the new earth. And so, this covenant inheritance is ultimately eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we are aiming for. That is what we long to receive. And so, the pressing question which our author has been dealing with is how do we gain this reality? How do we receive this blessed inheritance? How do we draw near to and dwell with God in joy and peace without sin, without suffering, without sadness? That's what our author has been answering and what he continues to tell us this morning. In the verses preceding the text that I just read, the author speaks of the superior, purifying blood of Christ. You see in verse 14. And now he says, Therefore, Meaning, because of Christ's pure and purifying blood that He offered through the eternal Holy Spirit, Christ has now become the mediator of the new covenant. And the new covenant is essentially God's promise to do everything necessary for His people to actually receive the covenant blessings. In Jeremiah 31, speaking of the New Covenant, God says, I will put My law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In Ezekiel 36, also speaking of the promise of the New Covenant, God says, I will take you from the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Do you hear that? The new covenant is just promise after promise from God saying, I'm going to do this. So for us to receive the promises, all we need to happen is for this new covenant to be inaugurated. When it takes effect, God says, I'm going to do everything. And so, we need the new covenant to be inaugurated. We need a new mediator. One through whom we may draw near to God and one in whom God and all of His covenant blessings come to us. That's how you receive the inheritance. And so, you need Jesus. For Jesus is is the inaugurator and mediator of the new covenant. He is the one through whom you may draw near to God, and he is the one in whom God and all of his spiritual blessings come to you he has become the inaugurator and mediator of this covenant and that is precisely why as our author says those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance but we may ask then how did jesus do this how did he inaugurate the new covenant how did he become the mediator of the new covenant And this brings us back to what Christians preach and sing and celebrate all the time. He did it by His blood. You may receive the eternal covenant inheritance only because Jesus supplied the necessary covenant blood. This is clear from the transition from verse 14 to verse 15. Again, remember in verse 14, the author says Jesus offered his blood without blemish through the eternal spirit, which purifies our conscience from dead works. And then he says, therefore, because of this, Jesus has become the mediator of the new covenant. There's no new covenant without Jesus' blood and our purification. He had to offer His blood to inaugurate the new covenant. Which again you see in the second half of verse 15. Where it says we can receive this covenant inheritance since or because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words... The new covenant could not take effect until there was a redeeming, sacrificial death. No death, no new covenant. So it's important to note here that when we talk about Jesus' blood, we're we're not just talking about His his physical blood that, that flowed through His veins. It's a way to refer to His sacrificial dead death on the cross Jesus blood is just shorthand for sacrificial death on the cross so Jesus blood is not magical in the sense that you're purified by physical contact with his blood Jesus didn't come to earth to save people by just pricking his finger and just sprinkling blood on everybody No, shedding His blood is referring to giving up His life as a sacrifice on the cross. And again, the connection between verse 14 and verse 15 makes this clear because it uses blood and death synonymously. You heard it in the passage that Pastor Ryan read from Romans 5 again. It talks about blood and death speaking of the same reality. And this is again clear in verse 26 of our text, which says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So to talk about Jesus' blood or death or sacrifice are all referring to the same reality that takes away sin. So what we need to be cleansed and forgiven of sin and to receive our eternal inheritance is a sacrificial death. There's no new covenant without this. Why? Because what's a fundamental promise of the new covenant? I will be merciful to your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more. Forgiveness of sins is fundamental to the New Covenant. But we see in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God can't keep that promise without the shedding of blood. Why? Why is a sacrificial substitutionary death necessary for salvation? Well, that's what the author tells us in verses 16-16 through 22 this is also where the text can get a little bit confusing especially in verses 16 and 17 Leandra can attest I kept asking her throughout the week will you please pray for me because I'm I'm trying to understand this text I don't have the luxury of just reading a text saying you know I don't really know what that means and moving on my job is to figure out what it means and tell you So I'll give it my best shot. Because what you may not notice in your English translation is that the the word that you see translated in verses 15 and 18 as covenant, and the word you see translated in verses 16 and 17 as will, are the exact same word in Greek. The word is diatheke. Diatheke. This is the word that the author has used every time he refers to an Old Testament covenant. And whenever he's translated Old Testament texts that that talk about covenant, he uses this word. This is the most common word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to just talk about a covenant. So clearly this word... In the author's mind means covenant. However, this word outside of biblical context could also refer to a last will and testament. You know, like where we we make a will so that when we die, they know where to to send all of our wealth and possessions. When I die, that's not a whole lot. But somebody's still going to get it. Now it's only the context that tells you whether it's referring to a covenant or this kind of last will and testament. And because in verses 16 there are elements that sound like a last will and testament, many English translators use the word translated as covenant in verses 15 and 18 and will or testament in verses 16 and 17. And I understand why while I could be wrong, I actually think the word has the same meaning throughout. And it's referring to a covenant in every instance. Now I'm not going to give you all my reasons why. Because that would be a sermon in and of itself. Entire chapters of books I was reading this week were just on this word in verse 16 and 17. But hopefully as I walk through the text... You'll agree with me. If you don't, the Christian faith is exactly the same and this doesn't change it. So don't freak out. But remember, the author has just said that the new covenant has gone into effect with Jesus as the mediator because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the death is necessary to redeem from sin. That's what he's arguing. So we're asking, why is this death, this shedding of blood, necessary to inaugurate the new covenant? To make it go into effect. And the word for in verse 16 tells you the author's going to explain this. He's going to explain why a death was necessary to inaugurate the new covenant and receive the inheritance. He says, for where a will or covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will or covenant takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, from those verses alone, you can see why many translators would have the idea of a last will and testament. Because how do wills work? Well, someone writes a legal document that explains who will receive all that belongs to him when he dies. So parents usually include their children as the beneficiaries. Now, the children won't receive the inheritance until the parents die. But that's The key in a last will and testament. No inheritance until death. And so, if verses 16 and 17 were all I had to work with, I would agree. This is probably talking about a last will and testament. But our author is trying to explain how death redeems in order for sin to be removed and us to receive that promise in the new covenant. And salvation doesn't work by just God the Father dying so we can have all of His good things. Now salvation is like a last will and testament in that it is a unilateral giving. We don't work to receive the inheritance, it just is given to us. And God in the new covenant promises He will do and give us all these things things. But death is not necessary because we just need the parent to be gone. The author's not describing that kind of death. He is describing how Old Testament covenants were inaugurated. It's important to note here that this isn't coming at the end of the covenant, the example he gives us with the Mosaic Covenant is what happens to ratify the covenant in the first place. So what we are reminded of is that in ancient covenants, when a greater party was making a a contract with a lesser party, there were rules for this agreement. And the lesser party, as they make this deal, would have to in a sense, take a curse upon Himself and, and say, if I don't abide by all of these rules of the covenant, I die. That, that's the penalty. So you remember when God makes a, a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, they kill a bunch of, of animals. And it was a symbolic death to say, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I become like these animals. So for covenants, more often than not, animals were sacrificed to symbolize the death of the one ratifying the covenant and saying, I agree to this and I take responsibility. So, a death was necessary to inaugurate the covenant, but in this case it would be a symbolic death through the sacrifice of animals. So I think that's partly what our author is Describing in verses 16 and and 17. This is the general rule of how covenants are inaugurated. But there's more. Because if the one making, ratifying the covenant actually broke the rules, well, then they had to become like those sacrificial animals, they had to actually die. And what we learn is because the Mosaic Covenant, the the first covenant, using our author's language, was violated, which is clearly stated in verse 16, that death had to be paid. Not just symbolically, but actually. You break God's law, the penalty is death. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death death. So if this actual death does not take place, if the covenant curse is not enforced, what does that mean? It means the covenant was never in force in the first place. It was not binding. If its stipulations aren't met, well then what good is the covenant? If you can just break it and nothing happens to you. So again, we are being taught that God can't do all He has promised to do in the new covenant if that necessary death for breaking the old covenant isn't paid. Otherwise, God's covenant is not binding. It hasn't actually been established. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood... And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so, as it says in verse 18, even the first covenant had to be inaugurated with blood. And that's what our author describes here. He describes in Exodus 24, after Moses has received the law, he goes to the people, he tells them all the rules of the law, and then, he, and then they say, okay, we agree, we're going to obey. So he sacrifices some animals, he fills basins with a lot of blood, then he sprinkles the, the altar with the other half of the blood, and he comes back to the people, he reads the book of the covenant, and again they say, we agree, we will obey. So Moses sprinkles the people with the blood from the sacrifice, which is to say, either you now are agreeing that your life will be forfeit and given, or there is another life that is going to be given for you if you don't do as you have said. And of course, they didn't do as they said they would do. So why is blood necessary for salvation? Because the penalty for sin, for breaking the covenant, is death. And that death has to be paid or else the covenant's not actually binding. And if God's covenant is not binding well then what assurance do you have that you'll inherit the promises what good are promises that are never kept so the blood was to signify that the penalty of death had to be paid and it would be paid if the people broke the covenant for we often just think don't we well why does God forgive sins Well, because He's a merciful, forgiving God. He has to forgive sins. It's just what He does. I sin, He forgives. That's the arrangement. But God is not merely a merciful God. He is a just God. He is a good God. And so, He must remain just and good if He is to forgive sins. He can't violate part of His character to fulfill another part as if God even has parts. He doesn't. He is one being with one unified character. And so, there is no new covenant unless God keeps His word and the penalty for death is sin. The the penalty for sin is paid, which is death. So the blood signified that this penalty would be paid. God's not just ignoring or dismissing sin. He will only justify sinners if he remains just. But if that penalty is indeed paid, well, then in one sense that is the end of sin, isn't it? Because once that judgment has been paid, there's nothing left to deal with. For sin is in relation to God's law, and if the law is satisfied either through obedience or judgment, then there's nothing left for us to worry about. And this is why the people and all of the holy places were sprinkled with blood. It signified the cleansing of, of removal from sin. The penalty would be paid, and so sin can be taken away. What it came to signify was that as the people were sprinkled with the blood of animals, it was to say, we won't have to die because someone else is going to pay the necessary death that will take away our judgment. And yet, as we have learned in the the book of Hebrews, the the blood of animals, of bulls and goats, can't actually pay that debt, can it? Because it's humans who have sinned, It, it must be A human death. And thinking of Leviticus 17, that the life is in the the blood, it, it also then had to be the purest blood imaginable. For God must exact the judgment of sin, but He still requires perfect righteousness. And so the life offered had to be a righteous life. Bulls and goats can't be righteous. And they are not human. And that is why all of that Old Testament blood that was shed, as Moses holds out and said, this is the blood of the covenant, was not actually pointing to bulls and goats. It was pointing to another blood that would be shed. And so we must be clear that Jesus' blood is the only blood that has ever atoned for sin in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. All the other sacrificial blood was only effective as it pointed to the blood of Christ. There is one blood of the covenant. So when Moses says this is the blood of the covenant, it is only the blood of the covenant as it signifies Christ's blood. And when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, He says this is the new covenant in My blood. And so again, we see this relationship between a necessary death for covenant blessing. In other words, sin stood in the way of receiving God's covenant blessings. So it had to be taken away for you to inherit the blessings. Sin defiles us, and it defiles everything that it touches. So Jesus had to pay the penalty of sin and He had to offer the righteousness that would purify us. See, in the Old Testament, anytime anything unclean touched something clean, what was clean became unclean. When unclean and clean meet, the result is always everything's now unclean. But is there something so pure? So powerfully righteous that if we were to come into contact with it, we wouldn't make the pure impure, but the pure would make the impure pure. That is why we speak of the power of Jesus' blood. For as Jesus walks on the earth and he is fulfilling all of God's righteous commands, when He touched sinners, when He touched dead bodies which would make you unclean, the reverse happened. Jesus didn't become unclean. He purified everything He touched. Even death, He made life. And so it proved to us that here is the one who has the power to make all things pure. And so we are reminded once again that Jesus went into the very presence of God and He brings His blood which purifies everything. And so God sees the penalty has been paid and God sees the righteousness I require is now here before me. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, and one way to think about it, is the new heavens and the new earth is a cosmos where every square inch has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now why was that necessary? Not because heaven is impure. It's because this is where we're going to dwell. And so it's really an assurance to us that in the new heavens and the new earth, we have been washed clean, but now we also know that everywhere we go, nothing can contaminate us again because it has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So Jesus' death on the cross is like a fountain where the blood flows in both directions. It flowed back into the old covenant making it effective and it flows into the future cleansing us as well. So Jesus' blood has saved God's people in all times for all time and there is nothing more precious, more purifying, more powerful. His blood paid the penalty for sin. His blood was the blood of pure righteousness and so it washes away sin. His blood has done everything we need to receive the promised eternal covenant inheritance. Do you see why we sing so much about this blood? Everything depends on it. Now, the danger for the Hebrews was that they were minimizing the blood of Christ. In contemplating forsaking faith in Christ and returning to Judaism and animal sacrifices, they were suggesting, you know, I don't really think Christ's blood is enough. It's not precious, purifying, and powerful. Later, the author is going to warn them against trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant. In other words, he says, you guys are in danger of blaspheming the blood of Christ and saying this blood is not supremely valuable and powerful. And so my closing exhortation is do not blaspheme the blood. Do not profane the blood of the covenant. And you may think, well, I would never do such a thing. Yet we often do. In thought and in deed. How? Well, here are are two ways. Just my closing two applications. How do we embrace this truth and guard against profaning the blood of the covenant? Well, the first way is we actually embrace forgiveness for ourselves. We blaspheme the blood of Christ when we fail to embrace God's forgiveness in Christ. Now, this can be when we reject it altogether in unbelief, but I'm actually describing something a little bit different. What I mean is, is a, a tendency some of you might have to overestimate your sin. Now I recognize, much more often than not, our danger is to underestimate our sin and think this really isn't a big deal. But there is a way we can overestimate our sin, not in the sense that we think too highly of our sin, but that we think so little of our Savior. Yes, your sin is indeed greater than you could ever imagine. It is so great that you could never possibly pay the penalty. Your sin is an unpayable debt for you. It is so high. But the author of Hebrews has been trying to remind you week after week that Jesus is greater than anything else in this universe. You might even summarize the, the message of Hebrews as it is an exaltation of the superiority and sufficiency of Christ. So do not overestimate your sin in the sense of underestimating your Savior. John Newton, when he neared death, famously said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and christ is a great savior my only change to that would be i am a great sinner and christ is a far greater savior if your sense of sin is so great that you feel i just can't have peace i can't be forgiven then the problem is you are no longer seeing your savior Problem is not really that you think too much of your sin. It's that you think too little of your Savior. So do not blaspheme the blood of Christ by wallowing in fear and uncertainty. That does not actually honor Christ. Don't live if you have turned to Christ in faith and repentance under the, the crushing weight of guilt and shame. That doesn't honor Christ. That actually says, Jesus, you weren't enough. My sin is just too big. Yes, there are stains on clothes that I see what my kids have have done and I know it doesn't matter how many times we wash that shirt. That stain is never coming out. But let me assure you, there is no stain upon a soul that the blood of Christ does not make perfectly clean. His blood is purifying and powerful his death is more than sufficient for you so when you are tempted to think my sin is just too great preach to your soul again no my savior is too great for my sin to stand in the presence of his purifying blood and not be washed white as snow so embrace forgiveness second and finally Do not blaspheme the blood by failing to forgive others. We guard against blaspheming the blood as we embrace forgiveness, but also as we become forgiving. For when you fail to forgive others that have sinned against you and yet come to you in repentance, then you're not only sinning against them, you are sinning against God Almighty. For you are saying, yeah, Christ's blood may have been sufficient to atone for your sin before God. But it is not sufficient to atone for your sin before me. And what is that saying? That's saying, I am greater than God. And I require more than God to forgive you. This is blasphemy of the highest order. Bitterness. Unforgiveness holding grudges, storing grievances like ammunition. These are not small sins. And what's one way you know that that you haven't really forgiven somebody? Well, if they upset you or sin against you again, and you already have your gun fully loaded with all of their pastimes, and you're just ready to fire, that means that sin has not been put away in your mind. But remember what God says. He says in the New Covenant, I will remember their sins no more. Not he he can't actually remember what you did. It means he will never pull out this sin and hold it against you again. So forgiving is not forgetting in the sense that you never think about what has happened to you. But forgiving is forgetting in the sense that you no longer hold that sin against the person who has come to you in repentance. An unforgiving heart is is an unforgiven heart. For it is a heart that does not truly know how much God has forgiven them, that has not been so humbled and joyful that He has forgiven all of their sin, which is infinitely greater against God than what anyone has sinned against you. So when you are tempted not to forgive others, to just hold on to that grudge and bitterness, remember the blood of Christ, And preach again how precious, how purifying, how powerful it is. That it is not just washed away your sin. It's washed away away the sin of all of God's people. The blood of Christ reconciles us to God and to one another. It washes away your sin and their sin. So there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But where faith in Christ's blood abounds... Forgiveness also abounds. So this morning as you once again hear this good news of Jesus' blood, bathe in the blood. How? There's only one way. You bathe in the blood of Christ only as you believe in the blood of Christ. That it truly is supremely sufficient to wash away sin. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask that right now, once again, you would give us faith to believe in the, the blood of Christ, that it is paid the penalty for our sin, and that it has supplied the, the righteous life that your law requires. Help us to know that we have been washed clean as we trust in the power of this blood, And help us to look at one another as as those who have been cleansed by the blood. Help us to embrace forgiveness and to be forgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.